Let's pray. Father, we do pray that as we open your word, here I am, I'm sharing a story, but I'm being serious at the same time. I'm not a humble man. When I look at what humility really is, how C.S. Lewis defined it as not thinking too much of yourself or thinking too less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. I have to confess I'm thinking about myself all the time. How am I coming across? Am I saying what I'm saying correctly? Will I mess up my words? Will I commit heresy and I'm not even aware of it? Lord, help us to understand not just the information of justification, but its implications for our lives. If we're declared and counted as righteous in your sight, we can't mess that up. Oh, that that would make us truly a humble people, that we could pour ourselves out loving others, pour ourselves out seeking to understand others rather than trying to get our point across, seeking to empathize with others. So, Father, I guess what I'm asking and begging and entreating you is to pour out your Spirit to display His fruit. What the Spirit looks like is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. May that characterize us as the implication of the glorious good news that we're counted right by you. I'm asking a lot, but I pray I know you can do it. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand together for the reading of God's Word. We are up to Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 8, and Paul is continuing. If you remember, this kind of section we're in, which began in Romans 3.21 and goes through the end of chapter 5, he's expositing the doctrine of justification. And he says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Friends, this is the word of the triune Lord who gave it to us because he loves us. You may be seated. I'm sure most of us or many of us at one time in our lives have been on a job interview. Some sort of business, some sort of organization, you know, throughout my life, several different churches through the course of my time in the ministry. And when we go on an interview, we know that our potential employer, they're asking us questions. They want to know our strengths, our weaknesses, our desires, our passions. Why would we be a good fit for this particular company? Something that I didn't really pick up on early on, you know, 30 years ago or so, but more aware of now, is that also when you interview, when you're checking out, you're checking out them as well. You're kind of interviewing the company as well. I mean, you're not going to come across formally like that, but you ought to be kind of saying, I wonder if their vision, values, kind of the ethos, the DNA of this particular organization will match and fit who I am so that we could be like hand in glove, a good fit. Not just same goals, but work well together. 
You might ask, how does this fit in with where we are in our study of the book of Romans? Well, think about this. In chapter 3, Paul has just finished telling the Romans that one is justified by faith. And justified means that you are in a right relationship with God, forgiven of your sins and counted as right by God, totally as a gift, received by faith, apart from any performance, any achievement, any works of the law that the individual could contribute to this relationship. Utterly, utterly astounding. One of the things we have to realize, though, is that's only one benefit of salvation. That is not the whole of the gospel. That is not the whole of the benefits of the gospel. There is more to the scope and the comprehensiveness of redemption. As a matter of fact, one of the things that I think we need to avoid is reducing the glory and the comprehensiveness of the gospel to just the doctrine of justification. I'm certainly not minimizing the doctrine of justification, but I'm saying that's not the whole of the gospel. So, for instance, you also have the beautiful doctrine of adoption. The fact that God adopts us and brings us in to his family. That one of the other blessings and realities that come with being justified by faith in Christ is you're brought into the covenant family of God. And one of the things, and Romans 4 is kind of picking up on this, is basically saying, what are the means by which we're brought into the family of God? And what are the characteristics? What does this family of God look like? Because if you pay attention to Romans chapter 4, and the structure of the text is much like this, Paul is basically saying to the Romans, this Christianity, this gospel that I'm sharing with you and expositing to you and preaching to you is not a new thing. This is not a new idea. This is not a new religion. This is rooted in the faith of Israel. This is rooted in the story of God to Israel. And so much so, let me bring up two of your stalwarts, two of your forefathers. Abraham, the forefather of Israel, and David, the king, the pinnacle. And let me share with you how we become a part of this family, how we become part of Abraham's children, and what is the DNA what are the values? What is the ethos of this particular family? So in other words, and then you're kind of getting where I'm going with the application of this. If this is the ethos of God's family, shouldn't our family here at Spruce Creek kind of be emulating to reflect that, growing in that? And so we learn two things from this particular text in Romans chapter 4. We learn that through Abraham, that God's family is a family of faith. And the contrast there is one of faith versus works. That we are to be a family of faith, not performance, not achievement, not will to power, not dog-eat-dog, but a family of faith. And then through David, we learn that God's family is a family of grace. You learn in verses 6 through 8, the repetition of the word blessing, the fullness of blessing. And again, our English word blessing is so different than the Greek word blessing. Okay? The ethos of God's family is that we're a family of faith and we're a family of grace. Take a look with me at the text. First Abraham, verses 1 through 5 say, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as is due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. 
Now again, let's fit this together with the overall argument Paul is making here in Romans. Okay, if you remember, the book of Romans is Paul's exposition of the gospel. Back in chapter 1, when he even introduced himself to the church of Rome, he says, I, Paul, set apart for the gospel of God. His very life was defined by, he was basically saying every aspect of his life from his decision making to his thought life, to his worldview, to his perspective, is to be viewed from the lenses or through the lenses of the gospel. He was set apart. He doesn't look at it from how does this benefit my family? What's the cost-benefit analysis, the risk-benefit analysis? Will this be good for me? Is this health? He's looking at it from the perspective. Every decision he makes is made under the lordship of Jesus Christ and from the perspective of the gospel. He said that gospel was the actual power of God for salvation. And repeating a theme he will continually come back to throughout the letter, he said this salvation was both for the Jewish person and for the Gentile. That the gospel involves the revelation of the righteousness of God, a righteousness which is God's righteousness given to man, a revelation of the righteousness of God, which is a gift of God, an alien righteousness, not inherent in man, but given by God to man, which also speaks of God's faithfulness. This is why I had Rick read from Genesis 15. This revelation of the righteousness of God is not a new thing, but it's in fulfillment of God's covenant promises. And then he described how we all, Jew and Gentile alike, we're in the same boat, unequal fitting. Nobody is any better than anyone else in need of this gospel, how the gospel is God's solution to the problem of universal sin and evil. It is God's solution to our human problem of turning away from the living God. And so then, in the structure of Romans, after speaking of our universal need, he says, I don't care if you're immoral, red-letter district, You've totally, totally wasted your life. Or if you are Mr. Pastor, Mr. Elder, straight and narrow and all of that, you are in the same boat. You have in your heart turned away from God and the only thing that will save you is the grace of God received through faith. And so he begins in chapter 3, verses 21 to 31, and especially when you get down to verses 27 to 28, saying that this righteousness... This right relationship with God, the status of being in a right relationship with God is by faith and not by keeping or performing the works of the law. So the very thing that was a badge of honor for the Jewish people, he's saying, it really doesn't merit you or get you anything. And then he blows them away by ending the chapter, saying this applies to all people, Jews and Gentiles alike, and not only does this not nullify the law, it's the very thing that establishes the law. This is the very thing that is fulfilling the law. Which you could see if you were a Jewish person sitting in that congregation in Rome, how maybe your, ruff, your feathers would be ruffled a little bit. Paul, what are you saying here? Everything I've counted on in my life, everything that has brought me my identity, my worth, my value, you're saying it's worthless, it counts as nothing? And Paul's going, yep. A little offended, right? What if I told you that you thought you were a good mom, you thought you were a good dad, everything you've counted on to try to... It counts as nothing in God's sight. Tomatoes coming at me yet? <laughs> I'm going to have Scott Swain and the congregation of Spruce Creek mad at me all in one Sunday. Great Sunday. 
But this is the preface to the good news. Because Paul says, let me prove it from your own scriptures and from your own history. He says, let's take an example. See, this brings us to chapter 4. He says, let's take a case study. I'm not telling you anything new. Let's, new. let's look at somebody you've heard of. Anybody here, and imagine speaking to a Jewish audience. Anybody here hear of Abraham? Yeah, wait a sec. Yeah, forefather of Israel, verse 1 tells us that. How then do we become children of Abraham? And the answer Paul gives, gives an absolute contrast, a polemic between two ways of living, the way of faith and the way of works. And there's no neutrality between the two. There's no sitting on the fence. You can either live by faith or you live by works. It's either righteousness by faith or works righteousness, righteousness by works. And so as commentators tell us, what we learn, Abraham is an example to us of two things. That one, righteousness is by faith, which means the family of God. If we're the offspring, if we're heirs of Abraham, we are a family of faith, which means we have to oppose with everything inside of us all forms of works righteousness in us that we see. Because the family of God is a family of faith. And two, all people, read Jews and Gentiles, receive this gift of a right relationship with God in the same manner. So in other words, there's only one family of God consisting of both Jews and Gentiles brought into God's covenant family in the same way, on equal footing, with the same privileges and responsibilities. As the commentator Thomas Schreiner put it, and I love how he put it, he says, God has always intended. There has never been a plan B. This has always been God's plan A that the salvation pledged to Abraham would embrace the entire world. And he says this point is clarified and emphasized when we consider the case of Abraham. He begins in verse 2 when he says the word for. For is, he's basically answering the question of verse 1. He says, what shall we say then? Is Abraham our forefather according to the flesh? He says, for if Abraham, verse 2, for if Abraham, he's answering the issue of verse 1, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. Listen to what he's saying. He's saying that Abraham would have a reason and a right to boast if his right relationship with God was on the basis of his performance, if it was on the quality of his life, his self-discipline, his pulling himself up by the bootstraps, his moral rectitude, his heritage, his achievement, if it was inherent with anything within him, Paul is saying he has every right. As a matter of fact, go to it. Boast all about. But then he says, um, what does the scripture say? And he quotes Genesis 15. He said, but actually, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. In other words, Abraham didn't try to pull himself up by the bootstraps. Abraham didn't try to have just kind of moral rectitude and self-discipline. Instead, what did he do? He trusted in the promise of God's word. He trusted in the covenant promise of God. And as a result, Abraham was counted, which means reckoned by God, considered by God as righteous through his trusting and believing in the promise of God. I want us to think about this for a second. What does it mean to be counted righteous by God? That means in God's sight, 
We are forgiven, we are loved, and we are considered perfect in God's sight. Now I want you just to, let's camp there for a second, because this, you do realize there's a difference between preaching and teaching, I hope. Teaching is basically, I'm saying, here's the information. You got all this, here are the implications of this, connect the dots, all of that kind of stuff, we got that. You know what preaching is? Preaching is when we're worshiping together right now. Preaching is a thus saith the Lord. So I'm hearing God's word even as I'm speaking it. And I'm kind of going, Jeff, do you believe this? This is amazing. Because we are forgiven, we are loved, and I'm not going to stop there. We are perfect in God's sight. Do you know what that means? That means when I get up in the morning, just to give you an illustration, and I get on the scale... So you don't see yourself as perfect in God's sight either. I didn't even have to finish the illustration, and you were right there with me. How many of you are believing the God? You humble people. Are you believing the gospel that you are counted, not made, counted righteous in Jesus Christ? Meaning you look in the scale or you look in the mirror and you go, gee, that line is getting further and further back. Really? There's hairs coming out of every porous in my body right now. <laughs> you look in the mirror, and, and I'm supposed to preach this morning on how I am counted perfect in God's sight. Let me try, I'm picking on myself, and I guess you all are kind of coming. Let me try to apply this again. See, please examine your heart. You all are saying to me, this is Christianity 101. We live by faith, by grace. No, it's not. Our default mode, your default mode, is not grace. Our default mode is works righteousness. That's how we naturally. That's why we hate uncertainty. We must be binary and black and white. We don't like mystery. We try to eliminate all the various categories of faith and make it simple. Why? So we can count on ourselves and our own understanding. Rather than living in the mystery of God has made a declaration of us that we're right in his sight. I'll pick on myself again. We have to examine our hearts. I know for me, if I'm honest, it is so easy for me to slip into works righteousness. Let me tell you when I do it the most. Sunday at about 12.15. Because here's what happens. It's Sunday at about 12.15. I start thinking about my performance as a preacher, whether I consider it to be a good sermon or a dog of a sermon. And if I consider it to be a dog of a sermon, the lies I'm telling myself about what my worth and my value is based upon. And maybe even worse, if I consider it to be a good sermon, the lies I am telling myself about what my worth and my value is based upon. We have to recognize we are replacing dependence upon Christ. Notice how many times in the text it says you are counted as righteous. Verse 5, to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And again, as commentators remind us, in this context, the conception is that something is counted to a person that is not inherent in that person. Let me repeat that. The conception is something is counted, perfection, to a person that is not inherent in that person. 
And we say we believe that, then why do we have to be right all the time? Why do we have to defend ourselves all the time? Why are we trying to prove ourselves all the time? Friends, we are addicted. Our drug of choice is works righteousness. And we will not grow in humility. We will not grow in being a family of faith. We will not grow in thanksgiving. We will not grow in white-hot worship when we're full of ourselves because of works righteousness. To be counted as righteous in this context is the conception that something is counted to a person that is not inherent to that individual. Hence, faith is counted as righteousness in God's sight, which confirms that righteousness is alien. That it is is God's and it is granted by God's grace. The hardest thing to do in the Christian life is to abide in the righteousness of Christ. The hardest thing to do in the Christian life is to abide in Jesus. Did you catch the wording of verse 5 and catch what the application is? To the one who does not work. In other words, from the text, weird sermon, right? My application to you today is stop working. Boy, I'd get thrown out of a lot of churches. Glad it's not a tithing sermon today, right, deacons? Telling you all to stop working. But to the one who stops working, but believes in him who justifies, what's the next word say? The morally perfect? Those who have their act together? Those, how about who justifies all of us who should be blowing our noses in our, in our ties, if we wore ties anymore? Who justifies the ungodly? His faith is counted as righteousness. Oh, that we would be, the DNA of our family would be a family of faith. Real brief, look with me at verses 6 through 8. And now, and notice the language. He says, just as David. So he's following up. So he says, for Abraham. And now he's saying, I'm going to basically make the same point, but I'm going to tweak it a little bit. Just as David. And who was David? Only the pinnacle of Israel's history. Greatest king in Israel's history. But a flawed man. And we'll see that in just a second. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And now he quotes and he alludes to Psalm 32 that says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Thomas Schreiner says of this particular verse, he says, We have to notice here the close relationship between justification and forgiveness, which supports both the forensic and relational meaning of righteousness. They're both there. We have to learn to read things not as an either or, but a both and. Because Paul here putting David, just as he did Abraham, in the category of the ungodly, and particularly in his alluding to Psalm 32, is referring very specifically to David's sin of adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband Uriah. And he says, blessed are those whose lawless deeds, lawless deeds like adultery and murder, are forgiven. Now, friends, these are very relational sins, which makes forgiveness and that aspect of justification not only a forensic category, but a relational category. Not either or, but both and. 
This is a relational context. Think about it. We have to become used to our reading of Scripture, seeing things in this both-and light. See, Paul's use of this text, and these, ask Bathsheba and Uriah. You think they would think it's relational sins? You only took my life? You only abused your power? And what does the text say? The text says, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, are wiped away, whose debt is paid. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. And I want you to notice, and this is where the DNA of the family of God is grace. Because Paul here uses the word blessing. And he's here highlighting the fullness, the glorious comprehensiveness of our salvation, of our redemption in Christ. The DNA, the ethos of God's family is grace. Of completely undeserved, unmerited favor. That's why I love, just in the very beginning of that song, Revelation song, where it talks about heaven's mercy seat. There's no, there's no even approaching God if it weren't for heaven's mercy seat. You don't even get to draw near to God without mercy. And so the very DNA of even our daring to draw near to God is mercy. And this ought to lead to incredible thanksgiving and humility. God's family ought to be cultivating thanksgiving and humility as part of our DNA in all of our conduct. Abraham and David, known for faith and for grace, showing that this great doctrine of justification, that we are counted, reckoned by God as forgiven and in a right relationship with him. Oh, that we would forget ourselves. Can you imagine being the kind of people who weren't even aware of ourselves so we could be that consumed with our neighbor, with loving God and neighbor? You do know what gets in the way of that, right? Self. What if I say the wrong thing? What if I don't defend the truth? What if I do this wrong? What if I mess this up? You do realize that that's works righteousness. Oh, that we would not think too highly of ourselves, but also not think too lowly of ourselves, but we would be, as C.S. Lewis says, unself-conscious. Father, thank you for the glorious good news of Jesus Christ, that one is justified by faith, apart, totally having nothing to do with the works of the law. Grant us the humility to admit that we don't understand this as well as we think we do. That we don't get the implications, how it comes across in the way we relate to others. Father, teach us these things in Jesus' name. Amen.